Chapter Three of Colonel Quaritch, V.C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Colonel Quaritch, V.C. Chapter Three, The Tale of Sir James de la Mole. Is that you, father? Said a voice, a very sweet voice, but one of which the tones betrayed the irritation natural to a healthy woman who had been kept waiting for her dinner the voice came from the recesses of the dusky room in which the evening gloom had gathered deeply and looking in its direction harold quaritch could see the outline of a tall form sitting in an old oak chair with its hands crossed is that you father really it is too bad to be so late for dinner especially after you blew up that wretched emma last night because she was five minutes after time i have been waiting so long that i have almost been asleep i am very sorry my dear very said the old gentleman apologetically but hullo i've knocked my head here mary bring me a light here is a light said the voice and at the same moment there was the sound of a match being struck in another moment the candle was alight and the owner of the voice had turned around with it holding it in such a fashion that its rays surrounded her like an aureole showing harold quaritch that same face of which memory had left him there was the same powerful broad brow the same nobility of look the same brown eyes and soft waving hair but the girlhood had gone out of it the face was now the face of a woman who knew what life was and had not found it too easy it had lost some of its dreaminess he thought though it had gained in intellectual force as for the figure it was much more admirable than the face which was strictly speaking not a beautiful one the figure however was undoubtedly beautiful indeed it is doubtful if many women could show a finer ida de la mole was a large strong woman and there was about her a swing and a lissome grace which is very rare she was now nearly six-and-twenty years of age and not having begun to wither in accordance with the fate which overtakes nearly all unmarried women after thirty was at her very best Harold Quaritch, glancing at her well-poised head, her perfect bust and arms, for she was in evening dress, and her gracious form, thought to himself that he had never seen a nobler-looking woman. "'Why, my dear father,' she went on as she watched the match burn up and held it to the candle, "'you made such a fuss this morning about the dinner being punctually at half-past seven, and now it is eight o'clock, and you are not dressed. It is enough to ruin any clock.' and she broke off for the first time, perceiving that her father was not alone. "'Yes, my dear, yes,' said the old gentleman. "'I dare say I did. It is human to err, my dear, especially about dinner on a fine evening. Besides, I have made amends and brought you a visitor, our new neighbour, Colonel Quaritch. Colonel Quaritch, let me introduce you to my daughter, Miss Delamole.' "'I think that we have met before,' said Harold, in a somewhat nervous fashion, as he stretched out his hand. "'Yes,' answered ida taking it i remember it was in the long drift five years ago on a windy afternoon when my hat blew over the hedge and you went to fetch it you have a good memory miss delamole said he feeling not a little pleased that she should have recollected the incident evidently not better than your own colonel quaritch was her ready answer besides one sees so few strangers here that one naturally remembers them it is a place where nothing happens time passes that is all Meanwhile the old squire had been making a prodigious fuss with his hat and stick, which he managed to send clattering down the flight of stone steps, departed to get ready, 
saying in a kind roar as he went that Ida was to order in the dinner, as he would be down in a minute. Accordingly, she rang the bell and told the maid to bring in the soup in five minutes and to lay another plate. Then, turning to Harold, she began to apologize to him. I don't know what sort of a dinner you will get, Colonel Quaritch, she said. It is so provoking of my father. He never gives one the least warning when he is going to ask anyone to dinner. Not at all, not at all, he answered hurriedly. It is I who ought to apologize, coming down on you like, like. A wolf on the fold? suggested Ida. Yes, exactly, he went on earnestly. And in this coat, too. Well, she went on laughing, you will get very little to eat for your pains, and I know that soldiers always like good dinners. How do you know that, Miss Delamole? Oh, because of poor James and his friends, whom he used to bring here. By the way, Colonel Corch, she went on, with a sudden softening of the voice, you have been in Egypt, I know, because I have so often seen your name in the papers. Did you ever meet my brother there? I knew him slightly, he answered, only very slightly. I did not know that he was your brother, or indeed that you had a brother. He was a dashing officer. What he did not say, however, was that he also knew him to have been one of the wildest and most extravagant young men in an extravagant regiment, and as such had to some extent shunned his society on the few occasions when he had been thrown in with him. Perhaps Ida, with a woman's quickness, divined from his tone that there was something behind his remark. At any rate, she did not ask him for particulars of their slight acquaintance. He was my only brother, she continued. There never were but the two of us, and of course his loss was a great blow to me. My father cannot get over it at all, although... And she broke off suddenly and rested her head upon her hand. At this moment, too, the squire was heard advancing down the stairs, shouting to the servants as he came. A thousand pardons, my dear, a thousand pardons he said as he entered the room. But, well, if you will forgive particulars, I was quite unable to discover the whereabouts of a certain necessary portion of the male attire. Now, Colonel Quaritch, will you take my daughter? Stop, you don't know the way. Perhaps I better show it to you with the candle. Accordingly, he advanced out of the vestibule, and turning to the left, led the way down a long passage till he reached the dining-room. This apartment was, like the vestibule, oak-panelled, but the walls were mostly decorated with family and other portraits, including a very curious painting of the castle itself, as it was before its destruction in the time of Cromwell. This painting was executed on a massive slab of oak, and conceived in a most quaint and formal style, being relieved in the foreground with stags at greys and woodeny horses that must, according to any rule of proportion, have been about half as large as the gateway towers. Evidently, also, it was of an older date than the present house, which is Jacobean, having probably been removed to its present position from the ruins of the old castle. Such as it was, however, it gave a very good idea of what the ancient seat of the Boises and de la Moles had been like, before the roundheads had made an end of its glory. The dining-room itself was commodious, though not large. It was lighted by three narrow windows which looked out upon the moat, and bore a considerable air of solid comfort. The table, which was of extraordinary solidity and weight, made of black oak, was matched by a sideboard of the same material, and apparently of the same date, both pieces of furniture being, Mr. de la Mole informed his guest, relics of the old castle. On the sideboard were placed several pieces of very massive ancient plate, on each of which were rudely engraved three falcons, 
or the arms of the de la mole family one piece indeed a very ancient salver bearing those of the boises a ragged oak in an escutcheon of pretence showing thereby that it dated from the de la mole who in the time of henry the seventh had obtained the property by marriage with the boise heiress as the dinner which was a very simple one went on the conversation having turned that way the squire had this piece of plate brought by the servant-girl to harold quaritch for him to examine it is very curious he said have you much of this mr de la mole no indeed he said i wish i had it all vanished in the time of charles the first melted down i suppose said the colonel no that is the odd part of it i don't think it was it was hidden somewhere i don't know where or perhaps it was turned into money and the money hidden but i will tell you the story if you like as soon as we have done dinner accordingly as soon as the servant had removed the cloth and after the old fashion placed the wine upon the naked wood the squire began his tale of which the following is the substance in the time of james i the de la mole family was at the height of its prosperity that is so far as money goes for several generations previous the representatives of the family had withdrawn themselves from any active participation in public affairs and living here at a small expense upon their lands which were at that time very large had amassed a quantity of wealth which for the age might fairly be called enormous thus sir stephen de la mole the grandfather of sir james who lived in the time of james i left to his son who was also named stephen a sum of no less than twenty three thousand pounds in gold this stephen was a great miser and tradition says that he trebled the sum in his lifetime anyhow he died rich as crocius and abominated alike by his tenants and by the countryside as might be expected when a gentleman of his name and fame degraded himself as this sir stephen undoubtedly did to the practice of usury with the next heir sir james however the old spirit of the de la moles seemed to have revived although it is sufficiently clear that he was by no means a spendthrift but on the contrary a careful man the one who maintained his station and refused to soil his fingers with such base dealings as it had pleased his uncle to do going to court he became perhaps on account of his wealth a considerable favourite with james i to whom he was greatly attached and from whom he bought a baronetcy indeed the best proof of his devotion is that on two occasions lent large sums of money to the king which were never repaid on the accession of charles i however sir james left court under circumstances which were never quite cleared up it is said that smarting under some slight which was put upon him he made a somewhat brusque demand for the money which he had lent to james thereon the king with sarcastic wit congratulated him on the fact that the spirit of his uncle sir stephen de la mole whose name was still a byword in the land evidently survived in the family sir james turned white with fury bowed and without a word left the court nor did he return thither years passed and the civil war was at its height sir james has as yet steadily refused to take any share in it he had never forgiven the insult put upon him by the king for like most of his race of whom it was said that they never forgave an injury and never forgot a kindness he was a pertinacious man therefore he would not lift a finger in the king's cause but still less would he help the roundheads whom he hated with a singular hatred 
So time went, till at last, when he was sore oppressed, Charles, knowing his great wealth and influence, brought himself to write a letter to this Sir James, appealing to him for support, and especially for money. I hear, said the king in his letter, that Sir James de la Mole, who was aforetime well affected to our person, and more especially to the late king, our sainted father, doth stand idle, watching the growing of this bloody struggle, and lifting no hand. Such was not the way of the race from which he sprang, which, unless history doth greatly lie, hath in the past been each found at the side of their kings, striking for the right. It is said to me also that Sir James de la Mole doth thus place himself, bowing neither hot nor cold, because of some sharp words which we spake in heedless jest many a year that's gone. We know not if this be true, doubting if a man's memory be so long, but if so it be, then hereby do we crave his pardon, and no more can we do, and now in our esteem one of grievous peril, and sorely do we need the aid of God and man. Therefore, if the heart of our subject Sir James de la Mole be not rebellious against us, as we cannot readily credit it to be, we do implore his present aid in men and money, of which, last it is said, he hath large store, this letter being proof of our urgent need. These were, as nearly as I can remember, the very words of the letter, which was written in his own hand, and show pretty clearly how hardly he was pressed. It is said that when he read it, Sir James, forgetting his grievance, burst into tears, and taking the paper, wrote hastily as follows, which last he certainly did, for I have seen the letter in the museum. My liege, of the past I will not speak, it is past, but since it hath graciously pleased your majesty to ask mine aid against the rebels who would overthrow your throne, rest assured that all I have is at your majesty's disposal, till such time as your enemies are discomfited. It hath pleased Providence to so prosper my fortunes that I have stored away in a safe place, till these times be past, a very great sum in gold, whereof I will at once place ten thousand pieces at the disposal of your majesty, so soon as safe means can be provided of conveying the same, seeing that I had sooner die than that these great monies should fall into the hands of the rebels to the furtherance of an evil cause. Then the letter went on to say that the writer would at once buckle to and raise a troop of horse among his tenantry, and that if other satisfactory arrangements could not be made for the conveyance of the monies, he would bring them in person to the king. And now comes the climax of the story. The messenger was captured, and Sir James, incautious letter taken from his boot, as a result of which he, within ten days, found himself closely besieged by five hundred roundheads, under command of one Colonel Playfair. The castle was ill-provisioned for a siege, and in the end Sir James was driven by sheer starvation to surrender. No sooner had he obtained an entry than Colonel Playfair sent for his prisoner, and to his astonishment produced, to Sir James's face, his own letter to the king. Now, Sir James, he said, we have the hive, and I must ask you to leave us up to the honey. Where be these great monies whereof you talk herein? Fain would I be fingering these ten thousand pieces in gold, the which you have so snugly stored away. Ay, answered old Sir James, you have the hive, but the secret of the money you have not, nor shall you have it. The ten thousand pieces in gold is where it is, and with it is much more. Find it if you may, Colonel, and take it if you can. I shall find it by to-morrow's light, Sir James, or otherwise, well, or otherwise you die. 
I must die, all men do, Colonel, but if I die, the secret dies with me. This shall we see, answered the Colonel grimly, and old Sir James was marched off to a cell, and there closely confined on bread and water. But he did not die the next day, nor the next, nor for a week indeed. Every day he was brought up before the Colonel and questioned as to where the treasure was, under the threat of immediate death, not being suffered meanwhile to communicate by word or sign with any one save the officers of the rebels, and every day he refused, till at last his inquisitor's patience gave out, and he was told frankly that if he did not communicate the secret, he would be shot at dawn the following day. Old Sir James laughed and said that shoot him they might, but that he consigned his soul to the devil if he would enrich them with his treasures, and then asked that his Bible might be brought to him, that he might read therein and prepare himself for death. They gave him the Bible and left him. Next morning at the dawn, a file of roundheads marched him out into the courtyard of the castle, and here he found Colonel Playfair and his officers waiting. Now, Sir James, for your last word, will you reveal where the treasure lies, or will you choose to die? I will not reveal, answered the old man. Murder me if ye will. The act is worthy of a holy presbyter's. I have spoken, and my mind is fixed. Be, thank you, said the colonel. I have thought, he answered, and I am ready. Slay me and seek the treasure. But one thing I ask. My young son is not here. In France has he been these three years, and not he knows of where I have hid this gold. Send to him this Bible when I am dead. Nay, search it from page to page. There is naught therein, save what I have writ here upon the last sheet. It is all I have left to give. The book shall be searched, answered the colonel, and if naught is found therein, it shall be sent. And now, in the name of God, I adjure you, Sir James, let not the love of Lucre stand between you and your life. Here I make you one last offer. Discover to us but the ten thousand pounds whereof you speak in this writing. And he held up the letter to the king, and you shall go free. Refuse, and you die. I refuse, he answered. Musketeers make ready, shouted the colonel, and the file of men stepped forward. But at that moment there came up so furious a squall of wind, together with dense and cutting rain, that for a while the execution was delayed. Presently it passed, and the wild light of the November morning swept out from the sky, and revealed the doomed man kneeling upon the sodden turf, with the water running from his white hair and beard, and praying. They called to him to stand up, but he would not, and continued praying, so they shot him on his knees. Well, said Colonel Quaritch, at any rate he died like a gallant gentleman. At that moment there was a knock at the door, and the servant came in. What is it? asked the squire. George is here, please, sir, said the girl, and says that he would like to see you. Confound him, growled the old gentleman. He is always here about something or other. I suppose it is about the moat farm. He was going to see Janter today. Will you excuse me, Corch? Ida will tell you the end of the story, if you care to hear any more. I will join you in the drawing-room. End of chapter 3